So I started a series of sermons a few weeks ago on uh, developing a long range or a steadfast walk with the Lord in the midst of chaos and change. Um, and I kind of subtitled it developing sea legs. Sea legs happens when you're on a vessel and you're in the ocean and maybe there's some white caps around you, a storm, and you're able to kind of shift your weight to, to, to go with the boat. And we live in a time of incredible chaos and information. In fact, I gave you this paradigm, this little statement from a book that the author said this, that we live in this culture of uh, information overload plus social change, rapid social change that leads to chaos and confusion that you have, you're just inundated with stuff. And then there's so much changing that you live with chaos and confusion. And so I said, we need to develop sea legs as we study the scripture and walk with each other. And I mentioned foundational principles out of a book we're looking at the next few weeks in 2 Timothy. Paul's writing to Timothy and he says, Timothy, let me give you some foundational principles in developing sea legs. And the first he says is, you have received a legacy of faith from your grandmama and your mama. And it's been passed on to you, so live faithfully. And we have all received, if you're a believer, you've received a legacy of faith from those who went before you. Uh, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, according to Hebrews 12. And it's our time to run with the baton of faith. And the second thing Paul says is that you, Timothy, have been the recipient of, of growing, caring relationships. He says, he says, I remember, he says, verse 4 of chapter 1, I remember your tears and I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. So Paul says the way, another way we have foundational faith and develop sea legs is to have relationships that are deep and strong and Christ-centered. And then thirdly, Paul says that for this reason, I remind you to fan into a flame the gift of God that is yours. In other words, you, you, you blow on the embers of faith and you make them stronger. Paul says, fan it into a flame. Take your giftedness and your calling and where you live and what you do as a representative of Jesus and you fan it into a flame. You are responsible, a responsible person, a disciple of Jesus. And based on all of those things, we come to verse 7. I'm going to just give you some exhortations, and next week will be more applicable. But in verse 7, he says this, For this reason, Timothy, because you're to blow your faith into a white-hot flame, because you've received a legacy, because of relationships, because of your calling, for this reason, I remind you, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He's given us a spirit of power and love and discipline. Now, now, it can be translated several ways. He's given us the Holy Spirit of power and love and discipline. Or he's given you a disposition in your innermost being, inflamed by the Holy Spirit, of power and love and discipline. So let me give you my thesis. Here's my thesis. Because we live in a less than perfect world on this side of heaven, there will always be reasons for concern, sometimes grave concern, as the culture slips further and further away from, from truth. But in the midst of grave concern, we are never people who give way to fear or disconsolation 
are throwing in the towel because we have received resources from the throne room of the Trinity. So, so there are reasons for concern, but we do not throw in the towel. Let me read you a few verses. This is Psalm 3. The psalmist says that you, O Lord, are my shield around me, my crown, and the lifter of my head. And then he says this, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. The psalm says that there's concern that I have enemies, they're around me, but guess what? Even in the midst of that, I'm gonna lay down and I'm gonna sleep because the Lord sustains me and I will not be afraid. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not wait. Well, one, he maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leaves me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He leaves me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Wow. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So, so really, rod and staff, the rod means it was a, it was a thick, like a hammer thing that, that a shepherd would stick in his belt and he would use that hammer-like material to beat off wild animals that would dare to come close to the sheep. And, and, and the rod is, is what he would lovingly use to keep the sheep from, from going down a precipice and plunging to their death and to lead them into green pastures. So he says, not only does he protect me, but he guides me. Therefore, I will fear no evil. Or Psalm 46, verse 1 and 2. God is my refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear. Though the mountains change and fall into the heart of the sea, I'm not going to be afraid. There's reasons for concern, I think, in the New Testament, but 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that, verse 7, we, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Listen to this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but never in despair. Paul says, you know, there are times, listen, we're afflicted. We don't get it. We say, what's going on, God? What's going on, Father? Why is this happening? We're, we're afflicted. But he says, listen, we're never crushed. We don't throw in the towel. He says, we're perplexed, but we never despair. We never punt. We're perplexed. What's going on? But we're never in despair. And then he says, I do this because I carry about in my body the death of Jesus so that his life may be manifest through me. I remember the glory of Christ. Now, Philippians 4. Uh, I read a magazine, I get it, I think I still get it. This is, it's called the SCA Magazine, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And in that magazine, uh, and in the back of it, it's always a good, good little articles. And uh, they always interview a couple of college athletes and a couple of high school athletes. And they say, how did you come to faith in Jesus? And they'll say, through a friend or through my church or my family. Uh, what is your sport? And then it says, what's your favorite Bible verse? These are all high school college athletes. Now, four times out of five, 
The favorite Bible verse. Or if you're good in math, eight times out of ten. All right? The favorite Bible verse is what? Come on, guys. Give me a chance. What do you think? That's it. Philippians 4.13. Good job. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great verse for an athlete. When you read it in context, it's very, very interesting. For example, let's go to verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he tells what the situations are. Listen, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In other words, I know how to just get by. I know how to really kill it. In any every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. Abundance and need. And this, I, I know what it's like to be hungry, and I know what it's like to eat deluxe meals. I know what it's like to live in poverty and to live with all the money that I could need for that day. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ because I'm continually in Him, in union with Him, and the Holy Spirit pumps His life into my life. So on New Year's Day this year, I'm in California with my family, my daughter and her husband are there who live here and their kids and my family lives in California. We're all together having a great time and we're excited about the Sugar Bowl. And uh, my son's a big fan of the team that was playing in that game that wears orange. And he has three children and they all had on Clemson paraphernalia. And I was excited and we're sitting there and the game starts. And if you remember, the first drive was just glorious. And after that, it was downhill and it was horrible. And it was bad, it was bad. It was a horrible way to start the year. And I thought, if you had interviewed one of the people wearing orange who lost badly, a coach or a player who's a believer in their distress, they should have said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, we know how to win, how to lose. We know how to have this and have that. The, the issue is not my circumstance. The issue is the reality of Jesus in me and the supply that the Spirit gives me of Jesus in me. So, so, so there's always this issue of, of, of concern. But we never throw in the towel. Ephesians 6 talks about put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you can stand your ground. See? It just talks about the importance of, 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 of thinking well. We're going to have um, an elder meeting on Tuesday night. Elders and deacons are the two officers in the church. And when it describes what an elder should be like, this is what 1 Timothy 3, 2 says. It says this, an elder must be above reproach. There's no obvious sin. This unrepentant. He must be the husband of one wife, love his wife passionately, sober-minded. That word is used three times in the whole New Testament. Sober-minded, which means that he thinks with a spirit of depth and insight and really thinks well about life. The same word is used in verse 11 to describe the wives of deacons. Verse 11 says that the wives must be dignified and not slanderers, and, but sober-minded. 
Titus 2 is the only other time this word is used in the whole New Testament where it says older men should teach younger men how to be sober-minded. In other words, we're to be sober-minded because we realize that life really does count. That a man really does reap what he sows. That there is an eternity out there. That men and women and boys and girls who will die today and this week face an eternity with Christ or a place of judgment without him. It's not like reading an article today about a guy who said he, he believed that he can't get it right in this life, he'll get it right in the next life or the next life or the next life, which is Eastern religion. It's called the transmigration of the soul or reincarnation. We don't believe that. We believe it's one life and it's over. We answer. We, there's, a, there's a living God who's the judge who died on the cross for our sin. That we're not like the secularists around us, well-meaning secularists who say, you know, just live with responsibility and when you die, your life is over. It's like a candle being snuffed out. That's all. We, we don't believe that. And because there's an eternity and, and there are these issues, we, we want to be sober-minded. We want to live with, with, with great thought. And so because of that, Paul says, you haven't received a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. You have received resources from the Lord. The spirit of power means the ability to go through difficult situations trusting the Lord. Timothy's being called to be a leader in a difficult place. He's a pretty timid guy, we think. And Paul says, let me remind you, Timothy, you have not received a spirit of timidity or withdrawal or throwing in the towel. You've received a spirit of power. God works in you. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus talks about being hauled before unjust judges. This is what he says, verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. That's you. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And he says, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and they will flog you in the synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for the, my sake to bear witness before them. Verse 19. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. So Jesus says, you have resources. When you're called to give an account and people pigeonhole you or they even persecute you and they put you down, you think, how in the world will I respond? What will I say? Jesus says, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of the living God will give you the energy and the words to represent him as you run to him. There, be, there should be times in your life when, when, when you as a believer in Jesus are at a place and somebody asks you a question and you, or somebody pushes you the wrong way and you respond with grace and you stop and you say, where did that come from? With great joy. And the answer is, it came from the Holy Spirit. I love to read church history and I was, reading, just, I was in North Africa in a place called Tunis and there's this arena and there's a plaque about people who were literally put to death for their faith there. And there are these two women. One was an aristocratic lady who was a woman of wealth and her servant, and they both came to faith. And the aristocratic woman had a little baby, and her father was a well-known leader there in the city of Carthage. 
And she's in prison and all she has to do to, all she has to, do to get out is say, Caesar is Lord and not Jesus. That's it, boom, you're out. And the father pled with her and wept. He said, please, just, I can't do it. I can't do it. And they hauled her before. She's just a young woman. And this servant girl who had no education, they hauled them before authorities and they just spoke the gospel plainly and with grace and dignity in the midst of malicious men. Then the day came for them to be executed and they were going into the arena to be executed. And she took her baby and she gave it to someone and said, give this baby to my daddy. And they were eaten by wild animals while they rejoiced in the goodness of Christ. Where did that come from? The Holy Spirit. You have resources. Spirit of, of, of power. Lloyd-Jones, wonderful book. Read, if you're going to read a handful of Christian books, read Spiritual Depression by a Welch preacher who was a physician who became a preacher named Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he gives the example of about a, about a 13-year-old girl. I mean, a 13-year-old, maybe 14-year-old girl who was in Scotland during the time when they said, you have to worship at the state-sponsored church. If you worship at another church, then you're going to go to prison. And she was what they call a covenanter. And she loved the gospel. And so they had secret meetings. And they had uh, a Lord's Supper planned in a, back in the forest somewhere where no one would see them on a particular Sunday afternoon. And she was going to this worship service. And she's 13, she's 14. And the guards stop her. And they say, where are you going? She's been thrown in prison. She says what she said. This is really cool. She says, my elder brother has died. Jesus called himself our elder brother. She says, my elder brother has died and he has written a will. And I'm going to hear the will read to learn my interest therein and what he's left for me. I said, cool, go ahead. 13 years old. So what I'm saying is, man, you have resources. Don't sweat it. Run to Jesus. Spirit of power and love. I think the word here really talks about loving difficult people. I mean, what Jesus say, if you give good gifts to those who give gifts to you, no big deal. You draw names, no big deal. But if you really pray for those who use you and you love your enemies, man, you're really showing yourself to be children of God. Many of us are in homes with a spouse that, that loves us most of the time. We have kids that give us joy most of the time. We have grandkids that give us joy all the time. This is autobiographical here, okay? And uh, it's, it's just good. There are people sitting here today whose wives or whose husbands curse them, whose kids are breaking their heart, whose grandkids are breaking their heart, whose parents maybe mock their faith or curse their faith. And I love them for staying there, sticking by it. And you know what? God hasn't given them or us a spirit of timidity, but of love. To love difficult people. To walk through difficult circumstances. That, that, that's just who we are. And then, then he says a spirit of discipline or sound judgment or improvement. I'll deal with that in two weeks. But, but you have resources. So let me talk to you about this little diagram in the bulletin, worship guide, whatever it's called. It says that we battle interlocking circles, the world and the flesh and the devil. Every day. There's reasons for concern because we battle the world, the worldly system, the flesh and the devil. So let me just talk about that and say I respond to that. So we'll start with the devil. 
So, so we believe there is a malevolent force of darkness and the devil has minions underneath him and the devil wants to drink you down. The devil is accusing you even now of being a failure. The devil mocks the reality of Jesus. And if we don't deal with that and understand, we should be aware that there's spiritual warfare. Therefore, we put on the full armor of God. If we don't understand that, then we're going into the battle without our armor. So the other day I was listening to a podcast. I, I really forgot what it was about. It was a, a book review. The author was being interviewed. The author was kind of a quasi-Buddhist, New Age guy, quasi-Hindu, monist, who believed that there was a spiritual force of good and spiritual force of evil, kind of, sort of, maybe. And uh, he, he, was, he was one of those people you meet today who say, I'm religious or I'm spiritual, but not religious. In other words, I, I believe in the spiritual realm, kind of, sort of, but I, I don't think you can give definition to it. We believe you can give definition to it. Anyway. So as they were talking, he made a comment, and the, the interviewer said, well, you better watch out because the devil may get you if you do that. And they laughed. I mean, it was a joke. I mean, yeah, the devil. Ha, ha, ha. Listen, I believe there's a devil. The Bible says there's a malevolent force. And the devil wants to derail your life and drink you down, and he accuses you. So, so how, how do you respond to the devil? Quote him, then a quote verse. So Martin Luther, the Reformation guy, wrote a great hymn called A Mighty Fortress. And one verse goes like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. See? For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness, grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. The little word, Luther doesn't define, but we believe it to be Jesus. The gospel. See, Christ has defeated the devil. Jesus says in John 12, now is the prince of this world cast out. On the cross, he cried out, it is finished. Hebrews 2, he has released us from the fear of death, verse 14, by his death upon the cross and his defeat of the devil. So the little word is, is Jesus. 1 John 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So, so, so I look at this and I go, listen, when you hit a wall and you have a spirit of anger dwelling up or, 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 or unforgiveness or even slander or, or lust or whatever, the little word should be spoken is Jesus and say this, in the name of Jesus my Savior, I renounce the spirit of slander. Or in the name of Jesus who died on the cross for my sin, my King, my God, I renounce the spirit of, of lust because great is his name. Great is the name of Jesus. I, I, I run to that name. That's, how, that's what you do. See, listen, you have resources. You have resources. You don't have a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Or I think of the world. The worldly system, now, now listen to me. I'll say this probably several times in the next few weeks. Um, 
I believe it is incredibly more dif difficult. Parents, listen to me. Parents of young children, teenage children, grandparents. I think it's incredibly more difficult to nurture and raise a child now than when I did just a few years ago, when Sarah and I did. We live in a chaotic time. And so parents who aren't armed and aware and going for it and walking with an alert spirit are not doing what they should do. Parents that are more concerned about their kids achieving athletics or academic success than they are grounding them in the reality of Jesus are not the parents they should be. Example, 1998, I, didn't, I just thought of this a while ago, but 1998, my son is 14, my daughter's 10. The U.S. Senate votes, I think, 98 to 2 to approve something called the Defense of Marriage Act that was signed into law by President Bill Clinton. And the Defense of Marriage Act said that in our country, marriage should be defined as that relationship between one man and one woman, period. 98 to 2. And just a few years later, Obergefell decreed that marriage really can't be defined. It's between two people, I think eventually groups of people or whatever, but, but, but you can't really define marriage. And, and, and to me, if I'm a child, I'm raising children, the confusion that that brings into their life that is just broadcast at large over almost anything I watch on TV these days. I mean, almost anything. I'm just waiting for some issue to come in that, that trumpets that, that, that reality. It opens, it opens a Pandora's box of confusion and uncertainty and not even to speak about this gender fluidity that's going on. I mean, it goes on and on. It's difficult. Listen, you've got to be informed and you've got to be biblical and you've got to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And you've got to walk in tandem with people who love Jesus. And then, and then you've got, you've got not only the world, but, but you, and, and for, let me give you this verse about the world. You, this is why I don't have a spirit of, of, of timidity. Listen to John chapter 10. Jesus says this. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall follow me. I give them eternal life, and they'll never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of his hand. And see, resources, resources, secure, or 2 Timothy 1, I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted to him until the day that he comes again. My life, no timidity, resources, and then, and then the flesh. We know from the scripture that we're never done with sin, that we will deal with sin the day we die, some days more, some days less. And so the book of Galatians is all about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And in fact, um, the last couple of chapters deal with that. But listen to Galatians 5. Let's read a couple of verses. Galatians 5, verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Verse 22, but produce the fruit of the Spirit. 
Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And you read this, you say, Paul, how are you filled with the Spirit? How do you keep in step with the Spirit? How do you live by the Holy Spirit? How are you led by the Holy Spirit? And you read the passage, the book in context. Listen to chapter 3. I think answers it. Chapter 3, verse 2. To this, these people kind of slip back from the gospel thinking they could work hard enough to earn the favor of God, which Paul says is not the gospel. It should be condemned. Listen, chapter 3, verse 2. Listen. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by working hard, the works of the law, or by believing with faith? Which means you look to Jesus. You gloried in Jesus. You received the Holy Spirit. You saw the beauty and majesty of Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins. Verse 5, same chapter. He says, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? So I step away and say, if I'm going to be led by the Spirit, if I'm going to be filled with the Spirit, if I'm going to produce the fruit of the Spirit, if I'm going to keep in step with the Holy Spirit, I will be centered upon the majesty and the goodness of Jesus and taste that goodness. How do you put sin to death? The flesh. Running to Jesus, glorying in Jesus, being overwhelmed by the wonder of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So church, let me encourage you, you have resources. So let me give you a few illustrations. Hopefully you'll get this, at least one or two of them. So the year is 1992. Summer Olympics are in Barcelona, Spain. It's the first time in the history of the Olympics that the U.S. has allowed professional athletes to play on the basketball team. And what a team. Some of us who are alive then remember it well. It's called the Dream Team. And here's a Sports Illustrated cover of the Dream Team. So that's, that's Charles Barkley, Patrick Ewing, Carl Malone, Magic Johnson, I've forgotten the guy's name down here. What's his name? Uh, yeah, that's right. Michael Jordan. All, either are or will be in the Basketball Hall of Fame. And then they had you know, seven other dudes that were incredible. And they, they, let me tell you what, Charles Barkley was very quotable. Their first game was against Angola. This is what Barkley said. I don't know anything about Angola, but Angola's in trouble. And, uh, you know, he's always good for a quote. Um, uh, you can forgive part of that because he was an Auburn graduate. So you understand that. Um, but they played Angola. Listen, they beat Angola by, four, by 68 points. They beat Croatia by 33 points. Great team. Really, Croatia. They beat Germany, another good team. 43 points. They beat Brazil by 44 points. Spain by 41 points. Puerto Rico by 38 points. In one medal round, they beat Lithuania, 51 points. And then the gold medal game, they beat Croatia by 32 points. I mean, it wasn't even close. I mean, nothing. And what's interesting is after, after the, uh, th this game, there's a sports magazine I read that said that the coaching staff did a great job of coaching this team in the Olympic Games. I, I, I laughed. I, I fell on the floor. I was laughing so hard. I said, really? I mean, a great job. Um, so maybe I shouldn't use this illustration. 
She's not here. My wife is wonderful. <laughs> my wife doesn't enjoy basketball. She grew up overseas. It's a great sorrow to my heart that she doesn't love basketball or football or really baseball. I mean, it's just, she just like sports. And it's been, we've been in counseling for 40 years over this. But anyway, <laughs> my wife, well-meaning person, if she had been the coach in Barcelona, she said, you're the coach of the dream team. And she says, well, what do I do? She says, five people play at a time. That's all you need to know. She says, you guys play. Sits on the bench, somebody tells me, what do I do now? Put in five different dudes. You guys go. She would have been a great coach. You see, you didn't have to say, play ball, guys. See, she as a coach would have resources. Do you understand that? You have resources. Or this example, if that didn't hit you. So um, your daughter's getting married. You're the father bride. This Saturday, 2 o'clock. The wedding's at 5. You get a phone call. On the other the line is the, you've hired the cellist from the Charleston Symphony Orchestra to play, play for your daughter's wedding. And um, your daughter loves cello music. You love cello music. You grew up listening to cello music. And, and she's just got to have cello music. And the, the person on the other end of the line says, uh, I hate to tell you this, my husband, who's supposed to play, has an incredible virus. He cannot leave his bed. He will not be there. And so you hang up and you look at your wife. You say, what are we going to do? Oh, what are we going to do? And your wife says, think, which is not a good thing. A lot of wives say that frequently to their husbands. Think. She says, who is staying in the guest bedroom? It's my roommate from college. What is his name? Yo-Yo Ma. Now, if you don't know cello music, he is a virtuoso. Yo-Yo Ma played for President uh, Eisenhower when he's five years old. Imagine that. Anyway, so you say, oh, yeah. And so you knock on the door and you say, hey, Yo-Yo. I guess that's what they call him. They say, my, my, Chelsea, can you say, I would love to. In fact, I have a $5 million Stradivarius in the trunk of my car, and I would love to play it. And so Yo-Yo goes to the wedding, and he plays that, and it's, a, and it's incredible. You have resources. You have resources. Last illustration, you're, you're, um, you're on the PCA board at our school, Pamela Christian Academy, and the headmaster, J.D., and the law school principal, Rick, they want to produce this curriculum to teach children about the glory of Christ, but they want to do it using imagery and, and to supplement the scripture just so they'll get it in their brains. And, and so you're sitting there and says, oh, what do we do? And you look down in the table and you just added a board member who just moved here from England. His name is C.S. Lewis. This is, this is my illustration. I know it doesn't work, but just bear with me. And Lewis says, you know, I hear what you want to do, and I'm just getting ready to release a group of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. I think that might work. You know what? It would work. You have resources. My point in these, these illustrations is God hasn't given you a spirit of timidity, brothers and sisters, but a power and love and discipline. Yes, we should be concerned. Yes, we should be aware. Yes, we should be dialed into the situation. So this is, um, this man is named Eric Little. Story, Eric Little, 1924 Olympic Games in Paris, won the 400 meter. He won the gold. He should have won the gold in the 100 meter, but he couldn't win. But he, he's a celebrated athlete. He was the captain of the rugby team for Scotland. Um, 
1924, raised in China as a missionary kid. His wife was from Canada, raised in China as a missionary kid. He gets married shortly after the Olympics, and the next year he turns his back on fame and money and goes to China to preach Jesus, 1925. Uh, he and his wife have two girls, love these girls. Um, 1940, 41, the Japanese invade China and do unspeakable, or excuse me, the Japanese, yeah, unspeakable horrid things. <clears throat> Eric Little sends his wife and two girls. He didn't realize at the time that she was pregnant. He sends them back to Canada. He says, I'm going to stay and be with our people <coughs> and represent Christ. So by early 1943, the Japanese had worked their way to where he was. He's put in prison. Um, and in prison, uh, the stories of the prison experience are he, he arranged Bible studies, he arranged worship services for the Chinese and the Europeans who were there, he established a sports team, he taught the young people how to play chess, he did all of these things, he was an arbiter of disputes, he encouraged those who had to share with those who did not have much, he was an example of Christ in every way imaginable. And then in 1945, three girls in China, February, he dies of a brain tumor. I age 43, 43 years old. And I thought, you know, here, here's Eric Little, and, 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 and it's 1941, he sends his family to Canada for safety. He stays, he does the right thing, he does the right thing, he's arrested, he's put in internment camp. He had, we would say he has every right to withdraw and to become maybe a little bit bitter. Lord, what are you doing? I did this for you, what's going on? Or uncaring, but he did not. He, he said, I trust the Lord. I'm going to go for it. God hasn't given me a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. I'm going to do the right thing. So, see, it's, it's a, I call it an Eric Lytle moment in my life versus a Mrs. Havisham. Remember Great Expectations? This, this lady we introduced to is an older lady, and at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning, her potential husband, her suitor, left her at the altar fled town and she wore a wedding dress the rest of her days and left the cake on the table to be eaten by rats or whatever and she was unkept and bitter and uncaring and withdrew. Either we're going forward or we're not. So COVID, the election, several things about the election did not go the way I wanted. I'm very concerned about several issues that are going on. It breaks my heart. Just last week was St. Human Life Sunday. We've, in 40, 43, 48 years, 48 years, we've aborted 62 million babies. So there's several things I'm concerned about. And so somebody said to me, said, so what, what, are, what, what are you, what are we going to do? I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to love recklessly. We're going to speak with brokenness, but truth. We're going to be kind. We're going to give people the benefit of the doubt. And we're going to get involved as we can get involved. And we're going to represent Jesus to our community and our campus and our culture. There's no plan B. There's the Eric Little Path. There's no plan B. And so I say to you, Brothers and sisters, in January 31st, 2021, 
God has not given you a spirit of withdrawing, pulling back, throwing in the towel, but has given you a spirit of power to do the right thing and love to care for difficult people and discipline to think well. So this I'll close. There was... um, read a biography recently about a man named Martin Neimoller. I've heard about him for years. Martin Neimoller was a, a, a uh, submarine captain in World War I for Germany. He won the Iron Cross uh, second level and first level, which is one of their highest military declarations for bravery. A highly decorated, uh, esteemed after the war. He went to seminary, became a pastor. He loved his country, he loved Germany. 1932, he was excited because there was a party that was very progressively patriotic called the National Socialists that came to power. In fact, he had an audience with a man named Adolf Hitler and he said to Hitler, he said, I've I've heard people say that you're going to become uh, anti-Semitic and you're going to be against minority people and Hitler said it will never happen. And I'm on left, convinced that Hitler was telling the truth and then the next year something came out called the Aryan uh, Laws. The Aryan paragraph in the Nazi laws. And Aaron Perry's paragraph said something to this nature that, that if you were a child or a grandchild of a Jewish person, you couldn't go to this university, you couldn't hold this job, you couldn't have this profession. And if you were a Jew, you couldn't work in the home of a German if they were anybody in the home was under the age of 45. And if you were a Jew, you couldn't travel in this place or do this or do this, and you had to pay, you had to take 80% of your income and give it to the state if you're a Jew. And I Muller saw what was happening, that a group was formed called the National Church that said the notches are great, and I Muller stood up with a brave group of other people and said, we are the confessing church. We will not be cowed by the Nazis. We worship Jesus. We stand under the authority of the word of God, and we will not be subjects or minions of a state. And he was arrested and put in prison for a few weeks, let go. They were threatening, put him in prison, let him go. This happened for several years. And then in 1938, he was arrested. And they said, we're going to put you on trial and we're going to sentence you. And he thought he faced a long imprisonment or death. And so here's this man who's been incredibly brave and he was sentenced to prison. He lived in a prison for seven years, the last two years in Dachau. He was supposed to be put to death, but the German army saved he and a group of other people from the Nazis. Anyway, so in 1938, he said he's going up the stairs to be sentenced. And and that Germany at that time, you, you you walked up some stairs and they opened a door and you stood on a platform and the judges were in front of you. He knew he was going to be declared guilty, maybe face death. And he said he had never held back. He said when he put his hand on the railing and his foot on the first step, his body started shaking almost uncontrollably. And he said, I was just filled with fear. So there's a guard behind me. The first time I read this, I just wanted to weep. There's a guard behind me. He said, I just thought he was a Nazi guy. The guard leaned forward and whispered in my ear, Proverbs 18.10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. And I more thought, he said, I thought I'm hearing things. And so he still was standing there and he was trying to control his fear. And the guard leaned forward and said a little louder, 
The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and they are safe. And Nymora says, courage went through his body and he walked upstairs and he, there was, he was sentenced to hard labor. And I just thought, we need people who stand beside us who, who open the scripture and say, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it. They're safe. Brothers and sisters, you've not received a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. We have resources in our union with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that the name of the Lord is a strong tower in a world that's topsy-turvy and upside down and inside out. You are our foundation. So give us that line. Let us know that reality. We pray this prayer in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.